holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Hello, Kat. Kat. How are we all today? Well, quite excited. Yes, very excited. We have something to be very excited about, don't we? Well, we do indeed. Tell thou the tale. Well, we have just announced we're going to have our very first live show in a very special place. Of course, to two of us, it's a spiritual home almost. Um, Northampton. The Royal Theatre. And Opera House. It's been a while since they did an opera. (laughs) It's next to the Derngate, which is the modern one, which unfortunately has got that dodgy concrete in, I think. So they're Mm. fixing that right now. But it'd be lovely to play the Royal, won't it? Fantastic. I mean, I have been to the Royal as a a spectator, audience member. But um, no, so we're going to do a, I I believe, we're going to do a full recording of one of our shows and then a, a break for the audience to come round from the boredom of it (laughs) (laughs) sort of you know spirit vinegar rubbed into their eyeballs and then we will probably take questions but the format's not set is it Richard but what what works for one of these things I think what people like is for us to do our thing and then they'd like to interact really and we use a device like Slido which is excellent so it means that people rather than have to put up a hand and speak in front of other people if with Slido you can just text it and it appears on a on a screen edited first I have to say (laughs) so this is in February sometime isn't it yes it is so february the 7th i think i believe it's february the 10th oh, yes february not the february the 7th <laughs> february the 10th february the 10th how wonderful brilliant well i can't wait and you're both coming to stay with me for that i'm looking forward to that exciting i think that's going to be so much fun we have to decide on our topics shall we go down the sort of local oh i'm going to do one on clicking 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 is that already decided Excellent. clicking is the it's the most highly paid skill in shoe manufacturing. The clicker. Oh. It's the most technically skilled and well-rewarded job in a shoe factory. Clicking. Excellent. Well, you have a couple of months to research. So. Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, should we go straight on to our topics well, yes. for today? I think you're leading the way today, Cap. I think I am. And I, it's, it's going to be another food-related one <laughs> from me. Surprise, surprise. I don't know why they're all food-related. No reason at all. And I wanted to look into lobsters, actually, this time. Because lobster, I came around to lobsters quite recently. I have to admit, I hadn't actually eaten lobster until about two or three years ago. Uh, d- d- or something like hang that. on, you grew up in Norway. Yes, Norway is th- thrashing with lobsters. Yes, as we were. Well, we used to be at least. We uh. were here later, but no, it wasn't really something we would eat. And so I don't know. It wasn't really a, a reason not to. It just didn't really happen. But I obviously grew up with this idea that they were just very 
posh things to eat. And so the whole history of them as not being that was something that was a bit of a surprise to me. And it turns out there's lots and lots of lobster myths out there and about this idea of lobsters having been just food for the poor. And the most prevalent one uh, relates to East Coast US and New England especially, where in the colonial period, servants apparently were given so many to eat that they were constantly just given lobsters to eat because they were seen as a very sort of low class food that according to this this myth, they rioted because they were given too many lobsters. Um, <laughs> the definition of a first world problem. So apparently there was then uh, eventually uh, a sort of document signed limiting it to, I think, something like no more than three times a week. But apparently there's no historical real evidence for this whatsoever. So it's become a sort of legendly story that nobody really knows where it comes from. But at the same time, the lobster was actually also synonymous with laziness and cowardice. Again, so there's all these stories again. You wouldn't have thought a lobster looks like a the tank of the seafood world. Yes, with a big, big claws. Yeah. But this is because they can use their tails to swim backward to safety when they're threatened. So they sort of retreat Very um, from you know <laughs> any sort of dangerous situation. So that's, that's some interesting starting points. Obviously, I had to go back in time and try and find out that there's early exploitation of the lobster. And actually, they're pretty prevalent pretty much all around the world in all sorts of different oceans. And there's some really early evidence for its use going back to 15,000 years ago in uh, coastal areas of Africa, finding obviously evidence from middens, from these rubbish pits of the exoskeletons. It's a little bit tricky to find some of that evidence because they don't have skeletons as such. And so sometimes these fish or crustacean remains don't preserve very well in the archaeological record. We've got some very early depictions as well from Egypt, actually. So I don't know if you saw these in your travels to Egypt recently. You spotted a lobster. No lobsters. No, no lobsters. So the earliest is 3,500 years old, a mural from a temple war um, commemorating a trade voyage of Queen Hatshepsut, actually. And as a part of that, there's images of a spiny lobster and other Red Sea marine animals. So it's clear that the Egyptians ate and enjoyed lobsters. And uh, again, in classical uh, worlds, so Hellenistic and Roman world, this was uh, a food of, of very high status, very, very popular. We see it even on coins occasionally. So you've got lobsters on Roman coins, which I quite like. Vessels, wall paintings, and of course, uh, mosaics as well. So there's several mosaics with lobsters on them. So these were properly popular foods. Lots of classical writers wrote about them. Hippocrates or Aristotle actually also demonstrating a really good detailed understanding of the biology of the lobsters and how to fish them. They feature in comedies, tragedies, poems, cookbooks, medicinal properties, apparently an aphrodisiac. And uh, throughout the Mediterranean, their popularity just continued into the Middle Ages and beyond that as well into the sort of early modern era. So they have this long-standing history. But if we go to uh, North Atlantic, they are especially found on the Norwegian coast. So they were extremely popular. We have the earliest reference in the sagas, actually. So there are some references to eating lobsters in, in the sagas. So end of Viking Age, early Cat. medieval period. Yeah. What's the Norwegian for lobster? So, well, this is a really good question. So the, the name is Humir. 
And like the French. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so actually that is the, the root of the name for lobster in uh, 20 different countries. Say it again in Norwegian. Hummer. Hummer. How would you spell it? H-U-M-M-E-R. Hummer. It's a hummer, hummer is basically. Yes. It's going back to your tank reference. It looks like a hammer. Yes. A hummer. A hummer. hummer. And the it car. goes back. So there's one really interesting reference in skaldic poetry. So this is the Viking Age or just after poetry. And they've got something called kennings. And kennings are poetic metaphors that are being used. Oh, so yes. almost a bit like rhyming slang or something like that, but they didn't mm-hmm. rhyme. So there is one which is foldhumra, which is the realm of lobsters. And that's a kenning for the sea. So that's literally oh, the name okay. for the sea, is the realm of the lobsters. It kind of makes it because the lobster is such a distinctive beast and looks so frightening and so impressive mm. that um, you'd think it would suit very well a need to find heraldic significance in a beast of the ocean, do you yes, think? Yes, exactly. I think so. It, I mean, I remember going back slightly, Kat, on what you were saying. I remember when my mother and stepfather moved to the west coast of Scotland um, 50 years ago. And one of the first things they did, because they loved being on the water, was put some lobster pots out. And when we caught quite a few, because it hadn't been fished in that area for a while, gave some to some people nearby. And they were horrified because within living memory of their grandparents, it was what had been given to the poor in the poorhouse. Like oysters. Now a delicacy, but in Victorian London, they were the food of the poor. Yeah. Yes. But they were in a lot of Western Europe, they were hugely popular. Mm. In Norway, because they were so uh, common, they, they again were sort of really especially eaten by the poor. And um, they were then exported and the Norwegians make actually quite a lot of money out of the lobster trade. The Dutch had a complete trade monopoly until 1650 when the British took over. There was actually so much, they were so lucrative in Norway that various landowners tried to stake claims of the sea as well so that they could oh. actually control the, the fishing rights. But that led to lots of disputes and a royal decree declaring the sea essentially uh, and the lobsters common property so that they couldn't do that. They weren't allowed to, mm. to do it. Do you have that thing in Norway that we have here, whereas the crown has a prerogative over kind of bits of... Isn't it the bits of a beach which the yes. sea covers from time to time? Is it the high tide? Something like that. I can't remember. I can't remember uh, it is. But it's historic over yes. the centuries. Yeah. That's, I don't know if you have the I same. don't know, actually. I don't know anything about that. I'll have to ask the disembodied voice to look it up. Royal prerogatives of the yes. Norwegian <laughs> royal house. Yes. I haven't got that far yet in my uh, my research. But they were completely uh, overexploited, actually. So now the, the stocks are record low, actually, because they were so commonly exported. They're exploited all over the world. We've got brilliant you know, places like the Maya. They form part of the iconography. So there's just something about the lobster that's just been really popular. One of the loveliest things in Dutch still lies of the golden age is an enormous, usually cooked lobster, a scarlet lobster draped over a table. Isn't it a lovely thing? Precisely. So they do feature very frequently in art from that time period because that, that was that high status. They were all part of those foods. It's interesting. I was obviously wanted to look into biology and all the, the science facts. I fell down a, a big rabbit hole on all of that. Some interesting things I saw. It's, it's actually quite difficult to determine the age of a lobster. Mm. So if you get one out of the, the sea, how do you work out how old it is? They live, European lobsters live on average 31 years for a male, 
54 years for a female, which is remarkable. One of them apparently had been recorded as uh, being 72 years old, which is quite extraordinary. There was a massive one, wasn't that served to Queen Victoria? It was a 75-pound lobster or something. Yes, the one that's apparently recorded as the biggest weighed 20 kilos, 20.14 kilos. It's 50 pounds or something. I wonder if if it was tasty or maybe a younger, sweeter lobster might be what you wanted. I think... Yeah. The smaller ones are meant to be better, aren't they? Sort of one and a half pounds or something. But then they get quite cotton woolly, I think, beyond that. I'm sure when they get to a certain stage, they're not going to be so tasty anymore. Easy to mess it up as well with lobster, don't you think? If it's mm. not cooked up point. Not that I eat lobsters every day, but I probably would if I could. But it's very glycerine isn't it? Well, I remember trying to treat you, Richard. You came around for stuff for me a few years ago. And I got those predatory invasive prawns or whatever they are, shrimps, out of a lake. Crayfish. Crayfish, that's right. They're horrible things, American crayfish, in a lake at home. And I cooked them for you. I didn't realise you had to... (laughs) You're meant to sort of put them through a lot of water first to flush them out. So by the time I cooked them, they're just a terrible smell of lake mud, (laughs) which had come out of them during the cooking process. And they were inedible. But with lobsters, I think, you know, because it's a sea creature, it's, it's got a sort of purity to it as it comes out. And there's that terrible question about what you're meant to do with them. Mm. Euthanize them, aren't you, with some sort of care before, I think, chucking them in boiling water is no longer considered at all possible. That's what they do, I'm afraid. They say stick them in the freezer, don't they? But I mean, I imagine if you're going to kill your lobster, then maybe a whack on, you know, the Mm. kitchen implement through the through the back of the neck. How would you kill a lobster? I know that one about the the freezer, and I think there's something to do with... uh, a plastic bag and then in the freezer. But I, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. So did you know that they can actually regenerate their limbs if they lose them? No. You can do that. And they don't really seem to suffer with ageing. So they don't seem to kind of deteriorate over age, which is quite unusual as well. And they shed their entire exoskeleton as they grow, which is part of the reason why it's so difficult to tell how old they are. So they molt, basically. And they molt over the first five years, 25 times so they're constantly getting new shells I no idea so a lobster can be in molt yeah so they, they molt all the time they're the entire they're literally the entire exoskeleton extraordinary thing and then they keep on changing i did also look up some some fun facts really i found quite some bizarre recipes uh, for things that people have done with lobsters and these are all american ones there's lobster beer oh lobster donuts idea. lobster oh. ice cream and lobster chocolate. Apparently. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't think this that. is sacrilege. <laughs> Do you think if you were to eat a lobster cat, mm. how would you like it? I would be very Puritan about it, actually. Just a sort of nice, nicely cooked one with some lovely bread and mayonnaise. You have to have mayonnaise Do you, with hot it. Hot or you? cold, though? I think cold, probably. I prefer it I've cold. always had them cold. Yeah. Just like like prawns, really good prawns. Yeah. Just, just Are you to a thermidor kind of guy? Well, I like I like it any which way. Yes, actually. that's true. But same. I mean, co- <laughs> cold is delicious. Like, yes. What could be nicer than a glass of Chablis and a plate of oysters, a bit of butter and mayonnaise and stuff? But a lobster, I think they're delicious. And it's one of those things that you can do exciting things with, can't you? Mm. You can stick cheese and stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it works. Do you not like all that? I do actually. I just, but if I was offered lobster, I, I would, I'd have it cold with with homemade mayonnaise. So, do you want to know my favourite fact? Yes, please. This is a little bit of a niche one, and it only really makes sense if you're a fan of the show Friends. Oh. And if you remember an episode, yes. the one with. I remember. So, because in one episode, Phoebe tells Ross that his love for Rachel is like that of lobsters. 
And she says that it's a very well-known fact that they mate for life. And that you can see them walking around in the tanks holding claws. <laughs> <laughs> so I yes. sort of grew up with that and thinking that that was that was. Well, no wonder you didn't want to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, that happens not to be true at all. At all. So they don't do that. So Phoebe was not right. They don't mate the for life The one time Phoebe was wrong. All. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's penguins, isn't it? Penguins have swans. exclusive lifelong relationships, I think. Yeah. Yes. Definitely not the lobsters. And actually the whole sort of mating story is quite interesting. The female searches out the male's burrow and essentially knocks on the door by urinating in front of it, at which point he goes, fine, come in. And then she doesn't have to shed her exoskeleton so they can mate. But then she has to stay inside because it's quite dangerous. But then she kind of goes out and finds a safe place to lay her eggs and if they haven't all been fertilized she'll find another man and then he'll find another female as well so it's it's definitely not not comment comes to mind when you hear these stories but i mean that is a lot and 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 do the men i want to know if you know cat you may not know why why do the male lobsters last just over half the 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 lifespan of a female i don't know actually because they don't need to last longer yeah Yeah. it may well be it's one of those because it's a quite distinctive uh, yeah inbuilt obsolescence well so much happening in the world of the lobster that i knew nothing about (laughs) yeah well exactly well they are the rabbit holes so there we go that was my my lobster story so from that, we're going to be moving on to you, Charles. And you've got a topic that came from one of our listeners, Vaughan, and that's Freemasons. Yeah, I knew very little about these. I'm not a Freemason. Actually, when I was at university, my landlord in a very dilapidated house, six of us sharing one bathroom with a trickly tap, um, he, he said, do you want to become uh, a Freemason? And I said, well, tell me about it. And he said, well, I can't. So we had a site site on pass at that point because I didn't want to join a thing I didn't know about and he wouldn't tell me. And I get his willingness to be really secretive because in the old code of Freemasons, I'm sure this doesn't apply anymore, they used to have to take an oath promising not to reveal the names or other confidences. And, you know, if you went against that, you risked, you put yourself up for having your throat slit, your tongue torn out and your bowels burnt. So that no wonder he's slightly reticent about telling me the rules. But what I did know, I knew a version of this, which is the the way a candidate becomes a Freemason. There's a lot about Freemasonry that's really admirable, but some of it's quite comical, really. You have to present yourself outside the closed door of your lodge. That's the sort of place where your Freemasons meet. In shirt sleeves, with your left breast bared, blindfolded, with a hangman's noose around your neck, a shoe on one foot, a slipper on the other, with one trouser leg rolled up. Sounds like me on a Saturday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Searching for the Alka-Seltzer. No, but on entering, a dagger is pointed at your exposed nipple while members chant while wearing goatskin aprons, holding wands. You see, that makes me want to be a Freemason. (laughs) Well, I love a bit of dressing up and I love a bit of ceremony. Yes, there's a lot lot going on, a lot of ritual. And actually, interestingly, what I really didn't know was that it's the largest worldwide secret society. It's about mystery and ritual, oaths, funny handshakes, fellowship. It believes in a supreme being, or the members have to. A lot of people think it's some form of Christianity. It's not. It's open to any sect, although actually it's always been hated by different parts of the Christian world. Roman Catholics really have always said this is a very bad institution and that Catholics cannot be members of it. Although I would say that actually it's very patchy and poorly enforced. And there's been times when 
churches would be more enthusiastic about it than others, actually. But mm. um, Roman Catholics have been particularly strict about it. Even to this day, I mean, um, last month, the Vatican reconfirmed its refusal to let Catholics join as, as Freemasons, which is extraordinary, really. But I think that there are, there are sort of elements of it where you can see that the exclusivity of being a Freemason wouldn't necessarily gel with organized religion. People who are Freemasons call those who aren't profanes, rather like being a muggle in a Harry Potter story. And then sometimes they're seen as a threat to society. Jack Straw, a former Home Secretary in England, when Labour were last in power, insisted that people who are in the judiciary in England had to reveal if they were Freemasons because there's a suspicion that they were looking after their own in, in the courtroom. And this goes back to the fact that uh, when you join as a Freemason, you offer to each other, quote, a column of mutual defense and support, uh, a sort of looking after your fellow members, as it were. And so where does it all come from? Well, there's a sort of mythological aspect to it where some people think it goes back to King Solomon and the people who created his temple. There's no logic to this at all. The idea of the Freemason being a Mason, though, is, is an interesting one, which I'll explore in a moment. There was also a feeling that some of them were the offshoot of the Knights Templars, who had a particularly tricky time when, well, a lot of them were arrested in France on Friday the 13th of October, 1307. One of the reasons, apparently, why we think of Friday the 13th is a particularly ominous day. Many of them were burnt alive. But others were supposed to have escaped, and some were meant to have got to Scotland. And we know that some people were supposed to have sought refuge at a place called Kilwinning Abbey in Ayrshire, which was around at that time. And probably by complete coincidence, Kilwinning is the home to the lodge mother Kilwinning. Uh, they all have funny names, these lodges, uh, which is reckoned to be the oldest Masonic lodge in the world. Number one, isn't it? It, it is. One. That's right. It's yeah. number one. Now, where does it probably more likely come from, this whole tradition? It probably does come from Masons, the, the sort of more talented end of the cathedral building arm in Europe. And when the great era of cathedral building started to come to an end at the end of the Middle Ages, a lot of these people were itinerant and looking after themselves, really. There had been lodges for them to stay in. If you were a, a, an able workman, such as a, a mason, you would stay in a lodge. It was literally a, a sort of inn for you to stay in while you were completing a job because you were on the move. You went where the work was. And then you've got this sort of tradition that they, as they fell out, they looked after each other by having little hand signals, etc. So the Masonic handshake is one of the great well, it's what we know about the Freemasons, even if we aren't a Freemason. And they do. They have a particular way of gripping another Mason's hand. It's where they put their, I think it's a thumb on the knuckle. I think there's one for Mason, one for Master Mason. That's right. Yeah. Uh, okay. If you touch on a certain knuckle, it tells you what you are. And there's three different basic grades of, of, of uh, membership, as well as the officers above. What we do know is that the first recorded Masonic lodge was in 1599, but the actual Grand Lodge of England was only founded in 1717. Before that, there were four junior lodges, I suppose we would see them at as profanes, and they would meet in various pubs, the Goose and the Gridiron being the, the main one. But the other pubs were the Crown in Drury Lane, the Apple Tree in Charles Street, and the Rummer and Grapes in Westminster. And they decided to almost amalgamate, really, to choose a Grand Lodge out of which they could choose a Grand Master. 
They weren't a, a grand society, though. This is the interesting thing. They later brought in people of stature socially. But the very first grandmaster was a man called Anthony Sayer, who was a, a man of modest means, who was a bookseller, who in the 1720s fell on hard times. And as far as I can see, he's one of the first people to be looked after charitably by the organization when he ran out of money, probably investing in the South Sea bubble, which took a lot of people down in 1720. They had a sort of the equivalent of whip round for him. And when he died and was buried, they also gave a bit of money, half a guinea actually, to his widow, Elizabeth. The British Empire, as so often in our tales, uh, is a sort of driving force of masonry, Freemasonry. And we see elements of it in America. Quite a lot of the founding fathers were Masonic, a third of the 39. Masonry did have an association with the Enlightenment, didn't it? In, in continental Europe, an Enlightenment values, an association of people who were trying to kind of build a modern society or a new world. Absolutely right, Richard. And that would have appealed probably to these founding fathers, that era too. In the 1730s, Benjamin Franklin became the Grand Master of the Pennsylvania Grand Lodge. And among the many things he did, he was a, a polymath and a multi-talent. He was a publisher and a printer, and he reprinted the key book, the Book of Constitutions of the Freemasons. And we know that he was, for 60 of his 85 years, a very devoted and keen Freemason. And tradition has it that perhaps the cornerstone of the State House in Philadelphia was laid by him and the brethren of St. John's Lodge. Northamptonshire boy, you know. Oh, yes. His family. <laughs> and we had Washingtons, didn't we, in Northamptonshire? Just too. saying. Yeah. I know. We're often overlooked as a county. Yeah. <laughs> Except on this podcast. <laughs> but essentially, they are looking to be good citizens. They're not trying to exist outside the law, Freemasons. They're looking to support the law of the land. They see themselves as a force for good and they live. Four key qualities are integrity, friendship, respect and service. And there's quite a lot of charity at the base of what they do. There is criticism that a lot of the charity seems to be self-serving, but, you know, for, for, for schools, etc., that look after people in the Freemasonry. But I think it's you know, really an interesting outfit as, as a force for good. It's because of its secrecy that people see it as a sort of slightly suspicious and odd bunch of people doing odd things. For a long time, women weren't allowed in. We're not sure where the free comes from. It might have been from frere, as in brotherhood. So it was very much a, a male-only situation until recently. There used to be ladies' nights, Charles, where they sang an ode to the ladies. So the ladies would all turn up and they'd have, you know, chicken and gravy and potatoes and carrots and they'd sing an ode. Well, now there are <laughs> 5,000 actual Freemasons in, in the UK who are lady members. Their first grandmaster, of course, was a man in 1908, but they got rid of that. There's no men are allowed to be involved in their lodges. And there are sort of three degrees to becoming a Freemason. The first, you become an entered apprentice. It's a responsibility of those that do become that to look after those that are less fortunate. And then the second degree, a member becomes a fellow craft Freemason who's encouraged to, quote, better themselves through education and focus on self-development. And then the third degree is the one where you get uh, taught how to use your life wisely and be remembered for the right reasons. And then after that, they become a master mason. So it does probably go back to medieval times. It is an institution that you can titter about when you look at some of the rituals, 
But overall, I think it is a a force for good. They do have some signs that are people find off-putting. One of their symbols is the all-seeing eye. This is a reminder to the Freemasons of the watchfulness of the great architect or the higher being, as it were. That eye of providence appears on lots of buildings and it's even seen on the reverse of the American $1 bill. And you weren't allowed to have bond men, women, or immoral or scandalous men involved. I think that slightly slipped over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but the, in, in the 18th century in France, there were lodges of adoption established involving a mixture of men and women. So it has found its own iteration in different cultures. I suppose it goes either way, doesn't it? I mean, the association of like-minded individuals can be for their mutual support and benefit and for the enrichment of the world around them. And it can also be a sort of closed shop. Yes. And that's sometimes the accusation, isn't it, that mm. it's a closed shop. And a well, secrecy that we, we don't quite know what goes on. I suppose that's yeah, leads some, to a lot of negativity as well. Notoriously, it's like Propaganda Due, that lodge in Italy, where, where there's a lot of associations between government and church and independent industrial operations, if I can put it that way. Also, you can project onto it what you want because of its secrecy. So the Nazis in Germany had it as an outlawed group and anyone who was a member of it could have no rank in the Nazi party or even in in, in the army. Could see the Nazis sticking up for truth and justice <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, they were, they were, Masons were sent to concentration camps with inverted red triangles as their symbol. This isn't my favourite fact, which I will get to, but I, I enjoy the unbelievable mixture of people who have been Freemasons, you know, the ones we know about. Sir Winston Churchill, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who crops up in a lot of these, Rudyard Kipling, Oscar Wilde, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and Mozart, you know, his opera The Magic Flute was a, a peon to his Masonic beliefs. And even the comic Peter Sellers, Duke Ellington, Buzz Aldrin, Voltaire and Goethe. So really an extraordinary mixture. Gotta have something, right? And then my favourite is there was a football club in 1894 in England, in the northwest of England, called Ardwick FC. And they fell on hard times and they went to a man who was their club secretary called Joshua Palby, who by all accounts, there's no definitive proof, but he seems to have been a Mason. And he said that he had helped them out. But in return, the football club had to change its name to Manchester City. And they had to wear the colours of the Masons forever. And that is the sky blue and white that Manchester City were. Disappeared, never to be seen again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's now, that's a club that's worth $5 billion and is number five in Forbes's list of the most valuable soccer teams in the world. And that's thanks to the Freemasons. So there you go. Wow. Don't knock the Masons. That's it. My grandfather Excellent. and great-grandfather were Masons. My grand great-grandfather, and they, they are in the same grave, and it has the symbol of the Masons chipped into, chipped into it. So it was a lot to them, and uh, my great-grandfather was a very devout congregationalist and a, and a preacher. So I don't know. It, it sort of has a white Protestant air to it still, I think. There is a sort of social side. In America, you have groups of Freemasons, which really aren't. Yeah. They, they call themselves Freemasons. Yeah. They're a social set that do good works, rather like what's the, the other clubs around the world. Oh, that, well, like the Buffs or... Yes. Yeah, Round Table Lions. Round Table Lions, exactly those. But you cannot be both. If you're a Freemason, you can't be a social one as well. I think also the Freemasons in, well, in Britain were often the generation rising with industrialization needed to associate, needed to have a sort of common purpose and Freemasonry suited that too. So it's, it's a rather chameleon-like organization. It takes on the characteristics of those who are part of it. Do you, did you know anything about how to become a member if 
could anyone or can now anyone can you sort of if i want to go well actually i want to can I do that or is there well, a they, sort of specific they used set, to or? be I mean it used to be very difficult but now I, I think anyone can apply there's usually they used to sidle up to you and say oh you fancy being a mason or they did in, in yes. but now I think they're much more open aren't they about their the, the sort of secrecy they try to I went I was on a book tour sorry I was on a book tour at the Warwick History Festival and some of their talks are done in the Masonic Lodge there and you think goodness that's 50 years ago you probably wouldn't be allowed it's in there. They're incredibly hard working in charitable endeavours through the Masonic schools and stuff taking care of widows and orphans but also their support of churches and, you, um, they, and like many voluntary organisations they struggle for membership now. Goes down 5% a year. Has done, has done for the last 15 years. Yeah. She go online. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that, Charles. Not at all. So that leads us on to our final topic today, Richard, which you'll be bouncing away in a suggestion <laughs> by Felicity, which is the trampoline. The trampoline, yes. Step with me onto that stretched <laughs> fabric base and allow the elasticity to propel you to... Uh, heights you've only ever dreamed of. Actually use sometimes therapeutically the trampoline for people suffering from psychiatric illness, depression in particular. Trampoline is one of the sort of recommended therapies for that. So you can sort of, perhaps there's something about bouncing that produces a feeling of well-being. I don't know. The origins, we know something like it goes back a long, long way. In ancient China, there are records of people dancing on drums. Now, what would that be? But it mm. seems to be a trampoline thing. And then there, there was sort of feats of leaping perhaps involving some sprung device in ancient Greece as well. The tossing blanket is really where we need to go I think. Now if you are um, of the Inuit culture and if you live in Alaska, if you have a particularly successful whaling season you might celebrate that when summer comes, June around the solstice perhaps by being tossed tossed up in a blanket with a tossing blanket. Now this it, it happens to this very day actually but we know it goes back a lot do you know, there is an example of this. Amundsen, your countryman, Cat, yes. the Maud expedition, when he went on the ship named Maud, after Maud of Norway, who was Maud of Wales before she was Maud of Norway, youngest daughter of Edward VII, became the Queen of Norway. There's a photograph, 1922-1923, around that time, of blanket tossing happening there as they tried to find their way through the Northeast Passage. What you would do, and you'd do it now, is you'd take either the skin of a bearded seal or perhaps a walrus split, and that would be treated and tanned. And then holes would be punched in and a rope passed through those holes. It'd be a big, big, big thing. And then around 30, 40, sometimes 50 people would grab hold of that. And then the person would stand in the middle and they'd go, Pull it like that. And so that person would then go boing up into the air. Now, if you did it well and properly, that person could go up 30, perhaps even 40 feet, which is about the height <laughs> of a modern Olympic trampolinist today. Why did they start doing this? Well, it wasn't to promote a feeling of well-being, although I'm sure it did. They think it might have been to have sighted caribou or to have sighted whales. You'd have a particularly long-sighted individual who'd be hooked up into the air like that so he could see at distance and you could see where the herds of caribou were or see where the whales were coming into striking distance if you were a whaler. So that's all going on. Meanwhile, of course, we've got these sort of acrobats who were talking about. We know that it was a circus skill. There's an early one. I think the earliest mention of something like it in Britain is about 1500 
with the Wakefield mystery play. Now, the second Shepherd story, which has been preserved, the mystery plays, of course, done around cities and towns of Britain by the whole time coming out of performing stories from the Bible. There's a character in that called Mac who is tossed in a blanket. It's thought to be used as a sort of punishment that didn't hurt you very much. So a warning rather than something that would cause you lasting injury. So Mac is tossed in a blanket. But you can see the same principle at work. Now, it's thought that that might have influenced a fellow called Browder. Now, Browder was a veteran of the American Civil War, and he saw the need for a device in the event of fire taking hold, or the need to quickly evacuate the tall buildings that were springing up in the cities of North America. At that time, Manhattan, of course, rock, you could build tall buildings, they needed to invent means of accessing that. So the lift, the elevator, the escalator, whatever. But one of the devices they needed to do was to get people out of them quickly in the event of, say, fire. So he, I think inspired perhaps by the tossing blankets of the Inuit, devised the life net. Now, this is something you've probably seen in films. Yes. Mm. That firemen would stand underneath a building on fire and then those trapped within it would leap from the window and be caught in the life net. Now, it was a real thing, invented in 1887. He tried it out in Greenfield on a building there where he got a man called Otis, who I believe was the grandfather, one of the trustees, to jump from a third floor window into this device, which could be folded up and then very quickly assembled in just a matter of seconds. And it was a sort of large round shape with a red sort of target spot in the middle. And you'd have perhaps 30 firemen, as they would have been then, holding that, encouraging people to jump. Now, this gentleman, Otis, jumped from the third floor to no ill effect at all. As you can imagine, in New York, in the early years of the 20th century, as buildings got higher and building regulations didn't keep pace with that, there was a notorious case in 1911 of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in Manhattan, the worst industrial accident in New York's history. And it was on the top floors of a 10 or 11-storey building in Greenwich Village. There was a factory there making shirtwaist, women's blouses, and it caught fire and around 150 people died. More than 60 of them were people who jumped from the top floors. Mostly girls, actually, were working in that factory, some men too. And the uh, life net was held underneath them, but it was discovered, you know, mass and velocity, jumping from that height. Mm -hmm. They just went straight through the net and many mm -hmm. were killed. Now, the life net actually continued in operation up until the 1960s, but the aerial ladder, which could reach... 100 feet in height, rather sort of replaced it. Meanwhile, step with me, if you will, to the University of Iowa in the 1930s, where a man called George Nissen, who was a, well, actually, he wasn't a man, he was a youth, he was a 16-year-old acrobat, got together with a bloke called Larry Griswold, who was a diver. And they were interested in something... Here's one of one of the versions of the origin of the trampoline is that it comes from the circus. So trapeze artists would have a net strung beneath their trapeze to catch them in the event of an accident or more likely into which they could fall at the end of their act. And they devised various methods of falling elegantly. So you would fall and then bounce up again and strike a pose as you uh, gradually... <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? So it was something yeah, that was sort fantastic. of balletic yeah. and beautiful. And it was thought to have been invented by a man called Du Trampolin, Absolutely no evidence for this at all. But this kind of thing had been observed by Nissen and Griswold, was Nissen really, and they decided it'd be a good idea to try to do something that enabled you to do that in and of itself, if you see what I mean, and to retain the bounce so you could bounce up and down rather than bounce once. So Nissen, apparently he'd devised this from his own bed. 
he found a bed frame and then he found um, a sort of canvas surface and then that was punctured with holes and that was attached by springs to the bed frame. So you could bounce up and down on this. 1936, they kind of invented the trampoline. Now, and sorry, Richard, did you say, what's that made of? That's plastic, is it? Well, now it's a sort of a plastic thing, but it was. But the, the spring is not in the fabric. The spring is in the springs and yes. attach it to yeah. the frame, if you see what I mean. And uh, it was named actually after the Spanish for diving board because uh, Mr. Griswold, he was known as the diving fool because in the 40s, he got bored of the trampoline. In fact, uh, the trampoline business that he started with Nissan had made a name for himself as a sort of comedy diver, the diving fool. And he had to retire after an accident in 1973 in Chicago. <laughs> but I digress. So named after the diving board. And it caught on. All of a sudden, people liked doing this. Not only did it catch on as a sort of sport and recreation, but also it was seen to have useful applications. Of course, what happened in the 1940s was America went to war. All of a sudden, combat aircraft, the technology of combat aircraft, greatly improved. And of course, the jet age happened. And they needed to have devices to help pilots to orient themselves to changes in position and speed that that kind of aircraft brought with it. So they were trained on trampolines also um, trained on trampolines due to a chance encounter were astronauts. When the Mercury 7 mission started having the same thing, they needed to help acclimatise astronauts towards the sort of strange forces of gravity and weightlessness that they would encounter in that enterprise. And so Mr Nissen engaged them with the trampolines so they could do that. And bored one day, they actually invented a sport called space ball, which has got oh. two trampolinists on either side of a frame bouncing up and down and a ball which they have to either throw through a frame or prevent from going through the frame. That didn't catch on. <laughs> Trampolining itself did catch on and became a competitor. It was hugely popular in Britain, by the way. That's a particular fondness for the trampoline here. But it didn't actually become an Olympic sport until the year 2000. And it is now dominated really by the Chinese, although the British have created a world champion, a woman's world champion, called Cat, funnily enough. But whereas now, of course, its popularity as an Olympic sport has taken it up to another level. The popularity of the home trampoline too. Did you know that during lockdown, the domestic trampoline industry, worth, I thought, about $3 billion a year, added another 25% because so many people were bored at home that they stuck their kids on a trampoline. That but do take nice care sense. because you can be very badly injured by the trampoline if you fall off it. Would you like to know my favourite fact? Yes, yes, please. The Olympic Games in 2000, attended by George Nissen, aged 86, who before he closed his eyes in death, managed to see the sport that he invented, adopted officially by the Olympic Games. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, what a lovely tale. Great. It's interesting, though, the trampoline thing, because it is quite, you know, We've got one in our garden. It, it is terrifying watching children on yes. it. And of course, every manufacturer has every rule up to prevent it from being sued. But the, the idea of just getting one child on a trampoline, I think, is an impossibility. Yeah, and not get them to not do really crazy yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, they are. They're not. Um, in fact, you're safer actually in a tossing blanket at the Inuit Festival. <laughs> yes. There's the World Eskimo Indian Olympics, rather old fashioned language, but that's what it is. Yes. And tossing in a blanket is done then. But of course, people can move. So if you go up and you're a little bit off, yes. yeah. they can dash over and hope to catch you in time. Also, one of the big white knuckle sports at the moment experiencing a surge of growth is the trampoline wall. 
And that is a wall. At the base of that is a trampoline. You jump off the wall, bounce up back onto the wall on a trampoline. Oh, yeah. I've seen that as a work of art. Well, yes. yeah. And you'll see it, lots of reels in yes. social media. Yeah. yeah. But they have all these, um, you know, that came, I don't know when, maybe in the last five or 10 years, all the big trampoline parks yeah. for, for kids. And yeah. they, were, they were completely new mm. and they're mm. everywhere. So you can go and do... So much of it. Just be prepared to sign a lot of disclaimers. Yes, I've, I've been there with my two boys, and luckily, no any yet. But <laughs> I sort of think. Well, quite often, it, 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 it's multiple occupancy of the trampoline is the issue because mid-air collision is rather a thing, and it's thought to be a hundred thousand <laughs> yes. admissions a year to the emergency room in the United States from trampoline accidents. Wow. But hey, parents, properly supervised. That's one yes. thing. Can I just say just one more thing about the trampoline? It is the only sport for which I've discovered I have a natural aptitude. Oh, brilliant. Do you? Well, I did. I can't do it now. My moobs would flap around so much they would displace <laughs> the world from its axis. But I did take to the trampoline. It's the only time I've ever realised yeah. I actually just had a natural That's wonderful. Very good. There's a lid for every pot. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Are you, are you any good on the trampoline, Charles? No, I'm not. My daughter humiliates me at most things and she won't really let me go on with her, which is a good thing, because if we collided, it would be very bad for one of us. <laughs> I like to think Norwegians are always jumping up and down on trampolines. Oh, yes. Are we? I don't know. I but on a seal skin one, probably. Seals, yeah, we would have yes. to do, well, do that. citing <laughs> schools of Wales in the old days. Yeah, yes. sounds like a likely thing to do. Well, it's the not Vikings the dancing on a I can imagine a Viking dancing on a drown. Mm. No. Yeah, it's not a thing. Not a really. thing, no. like no. lobsters. No, it's, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> lobsters. Surrounded by lobsters, no. you don't eat them. <laughs> Surrounded <laughs> by seal skin, but you don't. Don't, don't bounce, don't on, bounce them. on them. No, really. exactly. We've got more important things to do, actually, Richard. So patch your rucksack. <laughs> yes, exactly. Correctly. <laughs> yes, correctly. Sorry, not just pack it. No. So I think we're going to have to move on to our disembodied voice now to find out who is this week's winner please mm, yes i would also like to say completely unrelated but i've got a special talent for the pogo stick shut up <gasps> particularly good at the pogo stick did you just take to it instantly disembodied voice? yeah maybe we just optimize for different mm, well you're roller derby cat yeah charles but... you I mean, used to ride a fair bit i did you? used to ride a bit I don't know what I'm good at, really. <laughs> I can't. I can swim quite well. Have you got any interesting facts for us? Well, I do have a few things from earlier in the show. So, in terms of the crown's domain extending, it's over the continental shelf. So that's a zone up to about 200 meters deep around the British Isles, and then to the east, the limit lies halfway across the North Sea to sort of the Netherlands and Belgium and then to the West halfway greedy, across it? the yeah. Irish Sea. It's crazy. And that's settled by international treaty, I guess. Then. Yes, yeah. as far as I can tell. And then alternatively, I couldn't find any Norwegian crown claims to any kind no. of... It doesn't really sound like our sort of thing. But <laughs> <laughs> and I will say as well, according to the RSPCA, although they do have skin in the game, there's no humane way to kill a lobster. So it doesn't right. matter if you sort of plunge your knife in between its eyes yeah. or freeze it or submerge it in boiling it's water they suggest electrical stunning might be the most humane but not available in most kitchens <laughs> I suppose it's where your Kitchen. where your exoskeleton might not serve so well because it's hard to tase oh, yes. something that's armoured isn't it that's true yes. yeah. but I will declare this week's winner and I think bouncing towards the win yes. this yes. week Richard that's totally <gasps> fair yes. yes that no, was I, very that good was a, Proper win that one. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well you wiped done. The floor. 
I just want to watch your trampolining skills now, well, actually, Richard. I can't do it so. now, Kat. Mm. I couldn't even get on a trampoline, let alone <laughs> bounce on a trampoline. <laughs> but I did. I took. I just absolutely loved it the minute I did yeah. it. So before we go, we have to tell our listeners our topics for next week. So I am going to be looking into hallucinations. Oh, very good. Charles, can you please investigate hermits? Yes. And Richard, phrenology. Phrenology. You got an ology. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a good combination there, I think. Yes. Well, that's it for this week then. So thank you to everyone out there for listening to our podcast. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can also send us an email if you like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. And we'd love hearing your suggestions and reading your comments. So... In the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, can you stand on your head? Give me a trampoline. <laughs> yes. Stand <laughs> on your head. Maybe. Well, I don't know. No. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>